Are we, are we live now? I'm recording. You're <laughs> listening to Mumbrella Cast. Mumbrella, Mumbrella Cast. Cast. Welcome to the Mumbrella Cast. I'm Tim Burrows. Joining me to break down your week in media and marketing is Mumbrella's editor Vivian Kelly. Hello. Our news editor Paul Woolbank. Hello, Tim. And our features and opinion editor Josie Tutty. Hello. Plus, coming up later, Viv and Josie will be chatting to the Australian Association of National Advertisers CEO John Broom and Mediascope founder Denise Shravel about the not-so-age-old transparency debate. The internet was not even a word on anyone's lips, to say the least. The AANA's media agency problem. Really glad you asked this question. Let's get it out there right in the open. <laughs> right off. Um, that time we accidentally funded Breitbart. Uh, I think these kind of environments and these kind of brand associations have really become an issue. And the never-ending battle with wicked campers. They, you know, were uh, uh, an advertiser who refused to comply. But we don't let go. But first, the week's topics. Ooh Media buys Adshell. JC Deco buys APN. Your profile has Ben Sharp. Godfrey's goes back to the future. So let's get straight into it. This week was arguably a historic one for Australia's outdoor industry, with uh, four of its biggest players set to merge into just two. Viv, you were lucky enough to be on the uh, on the Mumbrella news desk when most of this broke, including uh, over the weekend. So you spent your life buried deep in ASX announcements and on phones to various spinners and outdoor industry bosses. Um, what let, 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 let's start with the basics. Uh, what happened? Well, what happened is somehow outdoor media became sexy again and everybody wants a piece of it. Uh, I couldn't believe the scale of the news uh, coming out in the past week. We obviously last year had Ooh Media and APN Outdoor, two of our biggest outdoor billboard companies trying to merge. That was ultimately scuppered by the consumer watchdog, the ACCC's concerns that it would lead to a lessening of competition. So this time around, we've had a bidding war for Here, There and Everywhere's Ad Shell, which is an outdoor street furniture business with both APN Outdoor and Media wanting a piece. Ultimately, Media was successful and then JC Deco, which is Adshell's biggest rival in the streets furniture space, came in and snapped up APN Outdoor. And of course, APN Outdoor um, had until that point been seen as a bidder to, uh, to, to that they, they were the other bidder in the Adshell battle. Yes. And JC Deco's purchase of APN Outdoor was contingent on APN Outdoor not pursuing its purchase of Adshell. So everyone was sort of up for grabs and and having a go, whether they were a buyer or a seller, and it finally came together earlier this week. So who is this good for and who is this bad for? Well, I think that is a wait and see because there's still so many factors at play. The ACCC has to approve it. In the case of JC Deco, because they're a French company, the Foreign Investment Review Board has to approve it as well. So I suspect that JC Deco and Umedia see themselves as the winner if it works. There are a lot of questions emerging from the industry, though, about if it's ultimately good for brands and advertisers, because as much as these outdoor companies are arguing, look, it won't actually lead to a lessening of competition, it's a billboard company merging with a street furniture company in both instances. The fact is, though, if these deals are approved, we are going from four to two, 
And if you want street furniture or you want a billboard, you can't really split that difference anymore and choose one. You've got to go to one of those two mega companies now and they might be able to control the market. So a lot of people are watching with interest what the ACCC will say. Now, if you're a member of staff, a salesperson or whatever, that word synergies has been bandied around. What I love a good mean? synergy. Look, you can't help but feel in reading these things that synergies and resource reallocation and resource duplication ending means staff cuts and a headcount reduction. Media have been quite transparent that in picking up AdShell, not only will the AdShell brand disappear within three months of the deal going through, 15 million to 18 million worth of cuts or cost synergies will be made. So far, APN Outdoor and JC Deco haven't been as forthcoming with the economic implications of their deal, but you don't merge companies for the sake of keeping everybody on and keeping the costs exactly the same. Now, I must admit, somewhat naively early in this process, I felt a bit bad for James Warburton, having come back to media after his time away with V8, the the former briefly boss of Channel 10, because it seemed like maybe he was going to sort of very quickly lose his job if, um, you know, if, 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 if APN Outdoor no longer needed running. Um, I then did read in uh, the Australian uh, uh, later this week that um, his various incentives should should be worth somewhere between three million and six million to him with this deal, which which I guess eases the blow a little. Well, it's hard to feel sorry for someone who's being placated with millions and millions of dollars. That's another thing that will be really interesting. I spoke to James at numerous points throughout this week, and. He was very keen not to answer my questions about his future with the company or the APN Outdoor brand or his staff. Because presumably there's nothing that says automatically when when APN comes together with JC Deco, which is the smaller company here, it's not to say that um, Steve O'Connor who runs um, JC Deco will automatically be the one who leads that going. Yeah, it's a really interesting dynamic between those two because JC Deco on an international scale is the big player. So it is the behemoth coming in to eat up the little one. But looking at the local market, APN Outdoor is much bigger than JC Deco here. So I think the leadership title is up for grabs and James certainly wasn't being drawn on on his future or what he wants or what he'll be advocating for. And the other question, I guess I'd just, uh, I'm not sure if it can be answered, but I'd, I'd, I'd be curious to know the answer at some point will be, on the other side of the equation, on the O acquisition of AdShell, um, if AdShell wins the Sydney tender, which is coming up for the sort of the, the street furniture contract in Sydney, that seems like a great buy. But if they don't, does that mean that O have overpaid for AdShell, do you think? It's such funny timings, all these purchases happening when apparently the outcome of the City of Sydney tender isn't known because surely that will impact the value of AdShell and also impact the sort of money that JC Deco has to splash around. JC Deco's had that contract for the better part of two decades. If they don't have it anymore, that really impacts their local revenue and presumably their staff figures and they might need to find some cost synergies. At the same time, if AdShell nicks that contract, then yes, I would say Umedia definitely got themselves a good deal. But bear in mind, U Media's initial bids were sort of around 470 million for AdShell, 
when they entered into that bidding war with APN Outdoor, they've ultimately purchased AdShell for $570 million. So they haven't got it on the cheap. Yes, that certainly seems true. Paul, wearing your digital hat, um, for some reason, most media have been disrupted by digital, mm. you know, to most traditional media, TV, uh, certainly newspapers, uh, magazines, etc. Outdoor seems to have thrived in the age of digital. Why is that? It really is an outlier in uh, in the media industries in that it really has gained from that. So digital out of home, programmatic out of home really is uh, moving moving ahead and uh, they really do seem to be picking up a lot of interest from the marketing industry, from uh, advertisers who are prepared to spend. And uh, this, I'd suggest, is one of the reasons why the valuations of these companies have been so rich. I suppose along with that, there's just the fact that with digitisation of billboards, you can increase the amount of inventories that are available because you you don't have to just put one brand up at a time. That's right, and much tighter targeting and much better uh, revenues from those billboards in those high traffic areas. And and not to mention that until we get the long-promised self-driving cars, it's much harder to actually disrupt billboards on a highway in a way that traditional television might have been disrupted by the likes of Netflix and whatnot. You just simply cannot get in the way of someone in a car with a gigantic billboard in front of them. So until we have that next major technological shift, which is still some time away, outdoor seems like it's going to be seen and it's harder to disrupt. So Ben Sharp has a new job. Ben, who's it, it feels like he's a podcast regular, although he's only actually been on as a guest here once. We seem to talk about him a lot after his two-week stint as Adma Managing Director, which I guess we'll now look back upon as Ben's holiday. Um, that ended uh, abruptly last month. So Bren was, but Ben was previously Managing Director at ad tech company AdRoll, um, and this new move, I guess, takes him back into the technology space, Vivian. Yes, well, this news broke on Thursday morning on the ASX uh, that Ben would be joining Pure Profile. And I guess we've been wanting to see what Ben will do next after he came in for our podcast some time ago. We did try and get it out of him, but he was very... Yes, he was somewhat evasive. (laughs) Uh, So it is interesting to see that he's got his next gig. But from my understanding, Tim... He's coming at quite an interesting and, and turbulent time for Pure Profile. They've yes. been through some changes. Yes, it's one of those companies where the, uh, the journalistic shorthand tends to be troubled company, <laughs> Pure Profile. Um, so there have been a lot of twists and turns. So the, to wind back a bit, um, Pure Profile, the, the, the founder who's no longer with the company is Paul Chan, although he's still one of the big shareholders. His vision was to and he was a little bit ahead of the curve on it to to create a a data set about what people think and do online and then allow targeting of them and a major mechanism of that was by getting them to do surveys and paying them a few cents per survey to do so um which was a kind of interesting uh interesting vision that was that that was where Pure, pure profile was going um began to lose its way somewhat certainly that's the the the, the picture that's since uh, uh, emerged it made a couple of acquisitions which went which went wrong it then fell out with the companies with which it had made from whom it made the acquisitions it became very bloody and messy some of the shareholders involved in those acquisitions who'd, who'd got shares as a result of it then tried to get the chairman andrew edwards sacked that was after paul chan had again in a slightly strange episode went from being ceo to 
innovations director to out in a few weeks flat. Um, there were, there were various kind of sort of, you know, loan rounds of loan raising that went on all of the time with the, um, with the share price kind of tanking. Um, Nick Jones then came in as CEO, I suspect not quite knowing what he was getting himself into. Ex, ex Starcom, ex Vivo, been, been, been out there in the, in the digital world. And things all went quiet for a few weeks. The, 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 the angry shareholders over the shareholders over the cohort digital acquisition kind of were placated. Um, and until the start of this week, there was a flurry of announcements. Some quite vague. There was one about, you know, hey, the, the profitability's improved a bit, but no detail about the actual numbers. A couple of kind of slightly vague announcements about new partnerships, including one extended with News Corp. It was already known there in with News Corp. And a, a real cynic couldn't help but wonder with June the 30th coming up, sometimes that's an important sort of end of the financial year number at which your share price needs to be as high as possible. So all these announcements certainly seem to go along with um, a bit of a jump in the share price. Although again, looking on the hot copper kind of conversation forum, one or two people pointed out this week, that share price maybe even jumped just before the announcements, um, which, um, you know, no, no people were sort of asking questions on hot copper, you know, what led to that to jump in the share price before the information had been shared with the market? Who knows? Um, but yes, then we've, we, we, we wrapped up the week with yet another announcement, which included, um, yep, yeah, Sharpie's kind of arrival to run both operations and sales, which sounds like most of the gig. Um, it seems to me. And then, uh, also a communications person as well. So. CEO Nick Jones has previously said we need to communicate better what we do. I'm not entirely convinced that they've reached that objective yet based purely on the fact that when I came to write the story about Ben Sharp's appointment, I asked the team, how can we distill what pure profile is? So I can say pure profile and insert word here, company. And the responses that came back to me from the team were so many and varied that I sort of thought, have we actually fully understood yeah. what this company is yet as we come to write about Sharpie's appointment and, and then new team structure? So what have they got to do to solve that problem? Yeah, that's a good question. Um, and I think certainly what maybe one of the things that happened is they're not as pure as they once were in, in, in what, what they're all about. Possibly, I think they they have to diversify in order to kind of get new revenue streams. But Paul, you watch that tech space quite closely. Yeah, and you get the impression from Thursday's announcements that this is the management sharp, trying to sharpen that focus. So bringing Ben and the new communications person in, probably a, more of a bigger management shake up mm. there just to get some focus in on management. Yeah, the, the new communications person, who I must admit I haven't crossed paths with, but comes out of um, the Dentsu family. So this is um, EJ do we know how to pronounce it, Gurren? I don't know how to pronounce it, but it it sort of looks like Gruen, but with the few letters mixed around. <laughs> well, what, what I can do is I have looked on her LinkedIn profile and I can, I, I can tell you that she describes herself this way. A self-branded relationship architect focused on creating personalized data-led experiences connecting consumers to the brands they love. My career has traversed understanding and influencing customer journeys in both digital and offline worlds, creating brand consistency and exceptional consumer engagements in hospitality, software as a service, programmatic experience, you know, 
experiential and digital marketing as well as project operations my passion is to nurture human-centered and highly curated experiences and who doesn't have that as a passion let's hope she can summarize what pure profile does in a slightly more succinct (laughs) way than that and finally this week vacuum cleaner brand godfrey's launched a new ad campaign just a few months after blaming a previous campaign for falling sales Josie, Godfrey's is quite an interesting company, isn't it? It is. Um, I sort of, coming from the UK, I haven't had too much experience with the brand myself. Um, Only recently buying a vacuum cleaner from the internet and it wasn't from Godfrey's. However, um, what I did discover while writing this piece was this is the first ad campaign since May's announcement to the ASX in which they blamed their 27% like-for-like drop in sales to their changes that they had made to their television advertising. Um, Those ad campaigns had moved away from the tried and trusted formula of discounts and sales. Um, it's, It's quite surprising to blame one TV ad campaign mm. for an entire year's worth of drop in sales. Yes, and I think in, in in fairness, they'd also sort of argued that there was a factor was the sort of not being players in the uh, in the I believe the phrase is stick vacuum cleaners segment mm. as well. So there was also a sort of you know product range thing. I mean, you know, it's the is the, the classic sort of five P's of marketing. How many of them were they struggling on? Yeah. Um, the most interesting thing here is that the company's original founder, John Johnson, recently took back the company with a 91% con- controlling stake just in time for his 100th birthday. Um, so we'll we'll have to see what what he does with the company, but I think his plan is to take it off the ASX and try to bring it back into his own hands using his finance company Arcade Finance. Paul, your views on on the the, the brand's position within the market? As someone who grew up grew up with Godfrey's adverts on TV, um, in fact, I think I may have seen them on black and white TV. Uh, this is. Godfrey's is your classic Australian retail company that's stuck in, at best, the 1970s and, dare I say, the 1950s, where you've got this shop that specialises in vacuum cleaners or stick vacuum cleaners, uh, really not doing anything about the internet, uh, not doing great uh, with even SEO for its own stores, let alone e-commerce and all the stuff that was fashionable back in, say, 2003. Another thing I did while I was researching was to take a look back at the old bowling ball ads from the 90s featuring CEO John Hardy, who has actually also returned to the company recently. This is so easy to use and suction. It's got enough to pick up the 16-pound bowling ball. Um, But the one thing that I felt was that the old ads were remarkably similar to the brand new ads that they've just released. So did you go home and experiment with your new vacuum on whether you could pick up a bowling ball with it? I do not own a bowling ball, so I could not do that, sadly. Well, we need to find an equivalent and you need to come back and report (laughs) it at next week's Umbrella Cast. Which... I think wraps up that point. And before we get to that, I should point out that Josie writes these scripts. I just say that just before I do the next line. So let's hope these new ads clean up. Thank you, team. I'll let you get back to the news desk. Thanks, Tim. Thanks, Tim. (laughs) 
on the Mumbrella Cast this week, we're joined by John Broom, CEO of the AANA, and Denise Shrevel, founder of Mediascope and Australian media industry veteran. Welcome both. Good morning. Now, Denise, you are the founder of Mediascopes, who produce Mediascapes, which are essentially guides to help everyone in the industry understand how all these different companies are related. Um do you find it's getting more and more challenging to keep these tangling spider webs of connections together? Um, and, and how do you kind of make sure that you're always keeping on the right track with these things? Yes, it's certainly a challenge. Some channels more than others. Um, you know, perhaps the cinema mediascape as an example isn't as active, anywhere near as active as the digital mediascape, which is really the one that keeps me on my toes. Um, and if I look at the year-on-year comparison of when I started the digital mediascape in 2010 compared to 2017, as I often say, I clearly had no idea what I was getting myself into because it's just so incredibly complex now, very fast-moving, a lot of different moving parts. Um, and, you know, it's not as linear as it was when I first started any of the mediascapes. There's now a lot of grey between the services and uh, the products that some of the vendors are offering. So, yeah, it's challenging. Um, but, you know, as I say with the mediascapes, they're never 100% correct and they're never 100% finished. So I just make different decisions. I absolutely welcome and greatly appreciate and, in fact, need um, industry uh, feedback and industry support. And I really, you know, try and get as much as that as, as I can. And you began your career in media buying and planning, Denise. I did. And has the industry always had the transparency problem that it seemingly has today? I started in the industry when I was 18 straight out of school, um, when the internet was not even a word on anyone's lips, to say the least, um, when the about the most exciting thing that you did was book an outdoor campaign. So... No, I don't think transparency or even measurement was actually even a huge issue back then. It was very much a, um, you know, a prey and spray type thing. Um, there was people back then that I still do deal with now. Louise Barrett is an example of someone that I used to get my pre-telecast times from um, when I used to book TV back in those very, very early days. So, no, it was a very, very different industry in terms of the issues and the challenges that we now face. But at the end of the day, the similarity is achieve, achieving for your clients. So some things haven't changed, but, you know, the detail really has changed enormously. Yeah, I, I would support that. I think it was a much simpler industry to mm. understand. Um, but I would say this too, that the fundamentals of what we're here to do have not changed whatsoever. Uh, they've just got more complex become much more complicated in order to deliver them. That's exactly right. And I think that that's something that sometimes we get a little, um, <clears throat> we miss that message. And look, to me, thinking back to those very early days, you know, I've still got a very similar level of passion and interest and curiosity about the industry. I still really like the people that I deal with on a daily basis. Um, and I think we're a great industry to be involved. We're not without our challenges, obviously, um, but still a great industry, you know, where I love just turning up every day. And John, speaking of transparency, a number of brands have recently announced that they're going to bring their programmatic element of their buying in-house and Accenture has revealed its plans to help brands do that with a sort of consultancy approach. Are moves like this the only solution to the problem of transparency between clients, media agencies and everyone else that's involved? Uh, no, there's, there's, there's several solutions. But I think, um, again, going back to the idea of a 
you know, what are the fundamentals here? Uh, we've been doing a lot of work uh, in this space, obviously, with the with the MFA and the IAB in, in partnership. And one of the insights that we've kind of like quickly realized is is that you know you can't regulate uh, or standardize your way to uh, uh, the best the best practice outcome here. Actually, it's about education. Um, and I think there's a huge opportunity um, to uh, speak a common language across the industry um, and to educate all participants in the right questions to ask, right? Uh, and also give give people an, a, you know, an insight into, well, what type of right answer should you expect, you know, in return? And if all participants are around the table talking that same language, then I think a lot of the the, the mystery um, and the uh, lack of con- confidence, perhaps the lack of trust, you know, will gradually er- eradicate. I think the the challenge, uh, however, is is that if whilst we have this void, then companies are going to provide alternative solutions. And obviously, the Accenture example is just just one of those. But for for the Accenture example, there's at least a half a dozen more that are out there as well. So, um, what do we do uh, as an industry ecosystem to actually solve this for ourselves? And do you think media agencies should be worried about this growing trend to bring that sort of programmatic trading in-house? Um, look, I think I think certainly in, in in the short term they have to ask themselves why you know why have Accenture done this and you know the, the guys at Accenture are extremely smart people and and and, and no doubt they've done their done their homework. Um, let's say this though, um, I'm a very strong advocate for the role of media agencies. The vast majority um, of advertisers in Australia need, you know, uh, strong, effective, reliable, trustworthy, you know, media agencies as partners. Um, So, you know, there is a future for for media agencies and I don't subscribe to, you know, a a lot of the language going around and the prognosis around the death of this, that and the other. It's just not not true. Um, I think in the sense of... um, uh, the thing they have to watch out for, however, is is that if they don't adapt uh, and change and listen to you know the needs of the market, then of course you know that's a risk for for, for some media agencies. But I think the vast majority are already on to the case. So speaking of media agencies, the AANA is seemingly one of the only industry bodies for advertisers that allows media agencies as members and. Some might say that that makes giving impartial advice on transparency or mistakes that media agencies might be making difficult. Where do you stand on that issue? Yeah, really glad you asked this question. Let's get it out there right in the open straight <laughs> off. Um, so, look, a um, few thoughts here, and these are my my personal thoughts because obviously – um, you know, media agencies, not just media agencies, but other marketing services providers have been members of the AANA for, for several years. Let me start by saying that there is a distinction between an advertiser member um, and um, let's call them um, associate members or media service provider members. They don't necessarily have the same constitutional uh, rights um, as an advertiser member. However, having said that, that's not the, that's not the point. The point really is is that to have them um, uh, as part of the conversation uh, inside the tent uh, from that point of view, uh, working together on the you know common industry issues that we need to solve for the collective good and health of a strong uh, advertising industry is is, is, the, is really really important. Um, Australia's not a big place. You know, we like to think that this industry is the be all and end all of everything that we do. It's, you know, monopolizes our lives, of course. But at the end of the day, this economy is no bigger than that of Holland, 
you know, it's not that big. Fun geography facts yeah, on the Mumbrella yeah, cast. Yeah, so, so look, you know, at the end of the day, um, we need to work together to solve problems. And uh, I think being collaborative um, and, uh, you know, working together inside the tent is the best way to do that. So speak to me about the other role of the AANA and its relationship with the recently rebranded ADS standards. Is that what we call it now? Yep. So that's sort of the body that self-regulates in a way the ad industry and upholds your guidelines. Can you talk everybody through how that body works and what it aims to achieve? Yeah. So look, the AANA took custodianship of the advertising self-regulatory system in Australia 20 years ago. So for the last 20 years, uh, the AANA, uh, with its sister body, um, what was then the uh, Advertising Standards Bureau, um, have been operating a very, very successful uh, system. Um, it is totally um, uh, had a, owned is not the right word, but um, you know, the AANA is a sole member um, of, of of the ASB. Um, clearly, you know, by its very definition, a self-regulatory system. You know, it's a voluntary system. Uh, paid for advertisers on behalf of advertisers, protecting our freedoms and rights to to advertise in a in, a, in, a, in any you know in a democracy, but we ha- we are also accountable to community standards, and that's that's the deal, so to speak, that we do uh, with uh, uh, stakeholders you know such as the community or the government around how we can be you know uh, act and advertise you know responsibly. So we hold ourselves accountable to the community. And within the ASB, there is something called the Advertising uh, Standards uh, Community Panel. And they're made up of you know, about 25 to 30 uh, members of the public drawn from all quarters uh, of society. And they're the ones who actually do you know, adjudicate against the complaints. So they either dismiss or uphold. Um, and what we've been doing over the, those 20 years is actually going back and having a look at those decisions. You know, Does the community... Um, you know, acknowledge that those are the right decisions uh, or the wrong decisions. Um, and consistently, uh, approximately 70% of the time, they are the right decisions. They agree. And of the balance, there's a split between those who think, oh, it's, it's, it's too conservative a decision or it's too liberal uh, a decision. And that, of course, plays to the fact that you can't appeal to everyone at the same time. Something I have noticed and I, I believe has been happening more and more um, brands such as, not to name too many names, but brands such as Ultratune, um, Sportsbet, it does feel like sometimes they're creating adverts to specifically be banned because of the press that they get from those ads being banned. How do you respond as an industry body to that sort of thinking, which almost seems to undermine everything that the AANA has? Well, look, I, I, I would say that um, if that's true, um, then it's a very, very, very small minority of brands out there doing that. Mm-hmm. Um, and I think, um, and I would also, from a marketer's perspective, say it's not a sustainable strategy over time. Um, let's take one example, for example, uh, Wicked Campers. Um, you know, you've all seen the, the vans. Uh, you've all seen the, uh, the, um, uh, the pictures and the language on those, on those trucks. Um, and um, they, you know, were uh, uh, an advertiser who refused to comply, but we don't let go. We worked with the state governments around Australia to actually find a way to have that offensive advertising uh, removed. Um, so we have very, very high compliance uh, rates. Um, the vast, vast majority of advertisers support self-regulation, um, don't deliberately uh, break 
the you know the codes um, contribute to uh, code development over time and uphold you know uh, decisions that are made you know in in their cases. And Denise, where do you stand on self-regulation of the industry? Do you think it works, or do you think we need the government to get involved? Self-regulation. I'm not a fan of self-regulation. If I had to be completely honest, um, I'm thinking of the Press Standards Council, particularly or that body. I might not have that. Um, name Australian Press Council. There you go, the Australian Press Council, which of course is industry. You know, it's a bunch of industry people that sit on that council. I hand on heart have to say that I wouldn't. I'm not a huge fan of self-regulation. Um, I'm also not a huge fan of perhaps some of the penalties that are. Um, that do apply to anyone that is brought up on that. I think it's, you know, what we would term now as the wet lettuce leaf often to some pretty serious um, things that I often see carrying in some editorial content. But would you want the government to be more involved in our media industry? Um, it depends what government, if I was to be honest. <laughs> well, they change every three years. <laughs> well, sometimes one would hope. Um, <laughs> That's a different part of my <laughs> different part of my interest group. Um, look, it, in terms of regulation, look, so any kind of um, you know the government probably does have a role to play, but you know it's again it's that fine line that John just sort of alluded to as well. You don't want too much government regulation because that's getting into a bit of a scary area. But in the same bounds, sometimes some level of government, you know, well comprehensive and independently independently applied government regulation could be a good thing. And John, you talked about community standards and and having to meet those and keep up with those. And obviously those do evolve over time, which Mm. would be a big challenge for for marketers and, and for industry bodies. I noticed that earlier on the AANA changed a lot of its guidelines and with some it went from an ad would be in breach if it was, I think, degrading and exploitative, Correct. and now it's degrading or exploitative. Absolutely. And it's just little nuances like that yep. that you have to keep up with. And you also had to uh, update your gender stereotyping guidelines as well. That's such a complex, ever-evolving issue. How can you possibly be expected yeah. to keep up? I'm glad you – this is a great question because this is something that we spotted too. Um, we need to be proactive. Uh, we need to be listening to the community uh, on a on an ongoing uh, uh, basis. So what we've done to help meet that um, is actually uh, introduce something called the um, the advertising sentiment index. And what that is is a it's a it's, a, it's essentially a tracking uh, methodology that allows us to listen to community conversation uh, and sentiment around uh, issues that are either already out there or beginning to 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 emerge. And what that will do is it will give us foresight as to what items and issues are coming up in society. And of course, it's ever-changing. Society is ever-changing. And we need to be, you know, therefore responding to that if we are to hold up to our accountability, which is really, really crucial. Um, so that will help inform our agenda. So, you know, uh, for example, one of the things that we're working on at the moment, which, you know, I'm sure you'll nod your head to is, you know, uh, how do we treat body image, for example, in advertising? We did know? nod our heads. Yeah. So, so, you know, that's something that we should be proactively leading the conversation on, not waiting for a crisis to happen and then being, you know, seen to be slow to be reacting to. So I think being much more proactive and preemptive is the way we need to go. One thing I'm a bit sick of with Australian advertising, and I have alluded to this in the past, is 
the constant images of women in the kitchen and then the dumb, dopey dad yep. who's incompetent at household tasks. Yep. I'm sure there are lots of dumb, dopey dads out there and, and lots of women in the kitchen, but there's also lots of people who don't fit into that and we almost keep reinforcing that with ads. And even recently I saw a Westinghouse ad which annoyed me for that very reason. Mm, mm. I wouldn't go so far as to complain about it, but it was all about mum's away and that's when the kids have the best time ever, but unfortunately dad sucks at cooking. Yeah. And I just thought <laughs> surely in 2018 we can do better than that. Is that what your gender stereotyping is targeting? Are we going to see the death of the dumb dad? <laughs> Well, I mean, that ultimately is up to advertisers and up to creative agencies who respond to, you know, the community and, and, and you know, those issues. Um, look, I, I think what we do is, is that, you know, through our codes, we actually say, um, what is, you know, not possible, right? Um, what creative guys and what advertisers do, you know, to then deliver their ideas uh, beyond that, the, the world is their oyster, always has been from a, from, a, from a creative point of view. We don't want to end up in a world uh, of being, of prescribing and over-regulating. Um, but what we have to do is make sure we define what's not acceptable. Interestingly, I host quite a large LinkedIn group um, for women. And one of the articles that I put up on that group this week actually highlighted the Disney princesses, who of course very much fit mm. into that female stereotype. And an artist had actually, actually reimagined them as career women. And it was amazing just to see, well, first of all, the reaction that it, it attracted in, in the LinkedIn group. But it was amazing just with that simple mindset, how all of a sudden that stereotype just changed. I often wonder also, it, is, do we need more diversity in our creative departments? Should they be the ones that are saying, let's switch this at the Westinghouse ad? Mother's Day is another good example of why is it always, you know, a shade of pink? Why do we always see an, um, presents displayed in the appliance department? Why aren't we looking in the, in the gardening department or the tools department? I wonder whether that, that is a, a reflection of a lack of diversity in the planning process, a lack of diversity at the creative agency level? I don't know. I'd be interested. It, it, for me, it boils down to um, opportunity. Mm -hmm. So advertisers will follow the opportunity, you know. Um, and I think if if there's sentiment around, you know, um, not showing gender uh, uh, stereotypes, mm. then, you know, um, creatives, advertisers will will go there, will follow, follow the opportunity because, you know, it will lead to stronger ideas and, and better outcomes. And that's what they're looking for. But I do feel like we have been talking about this for a very long time. Mm. So surely that sentiment is there. I feel like we've had this conversation so many times right. and yet it's still not happening. So it does start to feel a bit frustrating. Yeah. I think you're getting, you know, I, I do look at some in large advertisers, so Keith Wheat, Unilever, for example, you know, he, he's basically moved the whole organization uh, into this space. So there are the leaders uh, out there. Um, and I think, you know, they basically, uh, you know, carry the baton for the, for, for the industry. Um, and I think that's a, f a really important first step. Um, and others, others will follow. And to change the topic slightly, Josie, I know that you wrote an opinion piece for Mumbrella a little while back because we had something of our own 
brand safety crisis <laughs> in a way. I think yeah. an ad for our upcoming Mumbrella Finance Marketing Summit ended up on a undesirable site, for want of a better word. Did you want to explain to us yes. what happened there? So we were approached by a um, Twitter account called Sleeping Giants, who I believe Denise you work with um, on Twitter. And they essentially sent us a screenshot which showed our finance marketing summit advert on Breitbart, which is, if you don't know, is an alt-right described by some as a hate site. It has a lot of misogynistic commentary. Um, Milo, you, I don't know how to pronounce no. it, the surname. You're, That's you're okay. We know who you I'm going to try that. But yeah, um, he, he writes for, um, the site regularly. The founder of the site, Steve Bannon, um, he worked with Donald Trump. So, you know, lots of complex political activity going on there that we probably don't want to associate our fi- finance marketing summit with. So I just wrote a piece essentially saying, how can we, how can we track this? How can we be aware of when you've got a retargeted ad? If a, if a user goes to a certain website, then those ads are going to appear if they've shown interest in, in Mumbrella before, for example. So yeah, maybe this is something Denise you can talk to, but my question really was, how can we control it? How can we, how can we blacklist every site that exists mm-hmm. on the internet? Um, it, look, it's a challenge. Um, first of all, I'd like just to give a little bit of information about Sleeping Giants. And I actually came across, I think, Sleeping Giants through a comment in a Mumbrella article maybe 12 months ago. So they're a US-based, um, what I would refer to as a grassroots advertising activist movement that's really come up probably in the last 12 to 18 months, um, particularly as, you know, the rise of sites like Breitbart have come about. And I was really, I looked them up straight away when I saw what they were. And it really struck me in, you know, first of all, the work they were doing, but also the tone that they carried it out in. They don't, they don't accuse advertisers of being in these environments. It's more done in an advisory type tone, as in, hey, just to let you know, your ads are here. Because of course, now that ads are so programmatically, as you found, you don't actually know that you're appearing on these kind of environments. So Sleeping Giants in the US has now, which targets specifically advertising on Breitbart. And the way that they advise advertisers is they take a screenshot of the ad around the, you know, divisive inflammatory content. They then tweet the advertiser and say, Hey, Mr. Mumbrella or Miss Mumbrella, <laughs> Jerry stereotyping there. Um, um, your ad is here, you know, that doesn't fit in with your brand values. Thanks for letting us know. We'll let our agency know or we'll make sure our block list is up to date. So it's done in a really advisory kind of tone. Um, they've, Sleeping Giants in the US have now taken about 3,000 advertisers off Breitbart. They then moved on to someone like Tony, uh, Bill O'Reilly, sorry, on Fox and Friends, and they're also quite instrumental in getting advertisers to um, advertisers to pull their pull their support of a of, you know quite a controversial figure like Bill O'Reilly. Um, Sleeping Giants now have affiliates in most countries throughout the world uh, and of course they've launched in Australia I think back in August last year. Uh, to date in the Australian market they've taken 135 Australian advertisers off Breitbart um, and of course these advertisers don't know they're there and we know also through the retargeting it's likely that someone visited Mumbrella then went to Breitbart, probably looking for Australian advertisers, and then saw your ad there. So really what I think they're doing is trying just to really raise awareness for this issue in our market, uh, which I actually think they're doing a really good job. 
In terms of the things that you can do um, to stop your advertising appearing in these kind of environments, as John said about, you know, a lot of what he referred to, I think it really just starts in the planning process. Uh, I think these kind of environments and these kind of brand associations have really become an issue, um, you know, as the political climate's got a lot more heated and a lot more divided, I think a lot of content has really, you know, followed that do those divided sort of um, you know those divided lines, um, and that marketers are much more aware of the content they're around. So again, it starts at the, at the planning issue, at the planning point, where you need to decide the kind of content that you want to be around. And there's lots of tools and lots of ways now that you can make those kind of decisions. It's not always just hate and sort of negative sites that are a problem, though. There was a recent example uh, a number of weeks ago with uh, what has become known as the poo jogger. So for anyone who's not <laughs> familiar, there was a culprit in Brisbane, I believe, uh, who was basically pooing on his morning jog all the time in a public street and residents were very upset and ultimately they set up a camera and caught him. Uh, As you would. <laughs> I, won't, I won't bother naming him. I'd, I'd say his career, uh, he has resigned and many elements of his life are already unravelling without also appearing on the Mumbrella cast. <laughs> but the interest to the media and marketing world is that somebody spotted on theaustralian.com.au a story about said poo jogger and right next to it was an ad for Maryvale's June promotion which is all about 49% off drinks the tagline for which is bottoms up so there's a great <laughs> photo of the poo jogger oh, sprung yeah. alarmed face pants down you know it's a pretty full on photo right next to champagne glasses shaped like a bottom saying bottoms up another tagline above it that said we don't do things half assed which just oh. added another level. So well, I, I hope the marketing director has actually got that on his wall. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> yeah. exactly. Yeah. So, I mean, that's an amusing one for, for everybody except perhaps the poo jogger. But how can brands possibly keep on top of all those potential outcomes? You can't predict what the news is going to be. No, no. And look, you know, I was uh, earlier this week, I was, uh, uh, this person will be nameless, but I was talking to uh, one of the big banks um, and they were saying to me that um, – uh, you know, even even advertising on um, whitelisted sites, um, their brand appearing next to a story from you know the Royal Commission, for example, you know there is no one hundred percent guarantee. I think that's the point here. Um, but at the end of the day, uh, you have to have the conversation. It goes mm -hmm. back to the planning. It goes back to making sure that uh, any partners that you're working with really understand your uh, tolerance for risk. Um, and, you know, therefore, how does that then translate through to usable tools that um, your partners can then use? Blacklists, whitelists, environments, whatever, whatever it happens to be. Really, you, the marketer, the advertiser has to take accountability and control of the situation. Also understanding, I think, that consumers are increasingly seeing an ad next to a piece of content and there is an association. So a brand can really make a decision on the kind, you know, as John said, the kinds of content they want to be associated with. Um, 
again, starting at that planning stage, but from sleeping giants. And, you know, something that I often say is, you know, particularly with a lot of this divisive inflammatory and often hate speech that we're increasingly seeing, sadly, through some of our, through some of our mainstream media, uh, to me, it's also the kinds of content that your revenue is supporting. So that's something that I also often say, you know, it's, it's making those kind of decisions. You know, as an industry, we can play a role here. So what is the solution to that, though? As a, again, at that planning stage, so really having those conversations, as John said, Sleeping Giants is an activist movement that is actively looking for things like this in the same way that Stop Funding Hate is in the UK actively looking for advertising around that kind of content. So I'm, I'm, I'm in market saying, please, let's have these pre-conversations before something like an advertising activist movement such as a Sleeping Giants or such as a Stop Funding Hate catches you. Well, Denise and John, it's been quite a roller coaster ride, everything from poo jogging to gender stereotyping to hate speech to goodness knows what else in between. But thank you very much for joining us on the Mumbrella cast today. A pleasure. Thanks very much. Thank you so much for having us. That's all for this week. Join us next time for On the Road Chats from the Mumbrella Sports Marketing Summit and the Mumbrella Awards. Toodle pip. <laughs>